Are you acquainted with the ancient pyramids, temples, and monuments being magnificently decorated with zodiac configurations? Apparently, the persons who built them were intrinsically interwoven with the stars and their movements. What is more disturbing is the evidence clearly points to the secret arts of sorcerers, fallen angels, and the Nephilim. However, Psalm 19 announces the heavens declare the glory of God, points to His knowledge and purpose, while the stars' voices are heard throughout the galaxies. Join us now as we peer into the origins and meanings of this spiritual battle in Jesus, the Nephilim, and the Pyramids, Part 2, Satan and the Stars. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello and good day, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to the Russick Outlook. Thank you so much for joining. Today's topic, Jesus, the Nephilim, and the Pyramids. This is part two of a three-part series titled Satan and the Stars. If you hadn't watched or listened to the first part, I'd strongly encourage you to do so where we broke this down. And although these are three subjects that uh, you, you may be scratching your head, how are you, you know, uh, bringing these two or weaving these three together? Uh, trust me, you can, and uh, we, we do so by basing it on the foundation of the Bible, but also looking at other outside sources, such as some of the ancient texts referenced in the Bible, namely the Book of Jasher, the Book of Jubilee, and the Book of Enoch, as well as what is the archaeological evidence that we see today, and uh, what, are the, what are some of the outside ancient texts, what do they say, that may uh, lend us to some conclusions of which we can reach. And the reason I'm doing this is because if you look at uh, where the, the how these buildings and structures were created, the design, and we really got into this in the first part, the the incredible amount of detail, uh, the the design, and you have shafts going through these structures, lining up with certain cellular uh, um, constellations, and and it just defies logic. There's no way that man could have done this on their own. It's just impossible. And uh, this is really why we're, go- we're breaking this down. So what is the relevance to these buildings? Why are they pointing to certain stars? And, and uh, what was the purpose and, and, and the intent behind this? And what can we learn? What can we learn possibly about ourselves and our history? So this is really what uh, a lot of what I laid in the beginning. What we're going to cover now is a lot about the stars. We're going to get really get into the heavens. We're going to get into the reason that uh, not only that they may be looking at this and 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 kind of um, advancing their mission because of information found in the heavens, but also we're going to look at the, what the Word of God has to say concerning the stars and the heavens and the planets and the sun and the moon and and, and so forth. So if you enjoy information like this, please hit the like and subscribe button. Uh, subscribe to our channel, hit ring the bell. It helps us get the information out there. And, and really what we're trying to do, as always, I say, engage people with the truth, let people make informed, logical decisions on their own. And because some of the, some of the times this may lead to eternal destinations, uh, depending upon where you are, whether you believe in Jesus or not, or if you've accepted him as your savior or not. Uh, so also, if you could, Jump on the Rustic Outlook, join our email list. We also notify you <clears throat> when new topics are out there. And we're also doing some live Zoom meetings that we'd love to have you involved with. If you're on our email list, you will find out about it. So on that note, let's get into this again. We're going to be talking about Jesus, the Nephilim, and the Pyramids, Satan, and the Stars. So I laid this out um, 
in, in, in the first part. This is the inside uh, of the structure of, of the uh, Pyramid of Giza. And these three or four stars, I should say, uh, to the two to the left, which will be the south side, is Sirius and Zeta Orionis. Then Beta Ursa Minor on the north, followed by Alpha Draconis. These shafts coming out of, you see, going to Alpha Draconis, which is the king's shaft uh, or the king's room, I, I, I might say. So, you know, why are they going to these stars? Why is it line up so precisely? What's going on here? So, you know, the, the star, uh, I, I should say, in ancient Egyptian tradition, Sirius is associated with the goddess Isis. Zeta Orionis is with the brightest star of the three, and which is in Orion's belt, and it is identified with Orisus, the god of resurrection and rebirth in the remote epoch referred to as Zeptepi, or first time. So you see they have some not only astrological significance, but also uh, in, in terms of, and we're going to get into it, the, the zodiacs, the false religion, the, uh, I, I, I will say it's a device or a strategy or plan of the enemy to use this because uh, these constellations were laid out, were designed, were created, were put in place by the Lord, but it is Satan who takes those plans and designs and tries to mimic or um, uh, ultimately, if he does mimic it, it, it you know whatever he produces is, is going to be destruction anyway. So to the right, you see uh, some things that can be found throughout some of these pyramids and ancient Egyptian temples, which point to the zodiac as we know it. So if I say things like Taurus or Leo or Virgo, you'll know what I'm referencing. But I will say that there's uh, a, a biblical foundation for this. I'm going to talk talk about this briefly. Uh, but that this was distorted by by Satan and his cohorts. I show you on the right, if you're following me on video, that all of these 12 signs of the Zodiac can be associated with different ancient Egyptian gods. Uh, for instance, Scorpio, which is Seth, which is the god of evil, uh, and deserts and storms, and Leo, which is Ra, the sun Ra, uh, uh, the, the god of the sun, and Cancer, and which is the god of the dead, and so forth and so on. Um, all, you know, uh, evil in, it, in its core, in its foundation. And I don't say that lightly. I mean that. Um, but nonetheless, so I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, well, what, what is the significance here? What about the stars? What are we looking at? So in order to do that, I wanted to just take a step back and say, well, what does the word of God say concerning the heavens, concerning the stars, concerning the planets? Because he was the one who created them, designed them, put them in place, and actually named them. Remember, God says that, that he named all, the, all of the stars. So let's, let, let's go there first before venturing further. So I'm going to read from you right from the very beginning, Genesis 1, 14 through 16. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs. Uh, the Hebrew root word there is aveh, meaning to mark. So they're for signs and for seasons. So the seasons for days, for nights, etc., but also signs. For instance, they're very instrumental in marking out a lot of the Hebrew holidays. And it goes on to say, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So the heavens uh, were, were made and created by the Lord. And, you know, obviously he's pointing there in, in, in that last verse to the sun and to the moon. 
I'm giving you something that I think everybody uh, is very familiar with. This is what's called the Star of Bethlehem. That was the great sign in the heavens when, when the Messiah was born, when Jesus was born. Let me shift to Job 38. Uh, when Elohim was questioning Job, he pointed out his command of the Maserath. Now, this is the study, the Hebrew study of the stars. This was passed down in, in ancient days. It is not captured in the Bible, but I'm going to show you um, some, some references of, of what you can look up if, if you so desire to do so. Uh, but these 12 signs are in the circle of the constellations as we know them. So Job 38, 31 through 32. Do you bind the bands of Kima, which is what we know as Pleiades, or loosen the cords of Kisil, which is Orion? Do you bring out the constellations, the Maseroth, in its season, or do you leave the bear, Arturus, I'm sorry, with its sons? So there, you know, the Lord has names for the constellations, for the stars, and he's talking to Job, which is, you know, were you there? Do you know, do you know all about this the way that he does? So I guess the point is I'm, I'm breaking out is the Lord is very keenly aware. He's made this, he's designed this, he's named them. Um, other instances or examples that I can give you that he uses the heavens are the blood moons. If you're not familiar with that, you can look it up. Long story short, there are a succession of what we call four blood moons, the way that the sun and the moon line up, where the uh, moon appears to be turning red. I give you an example in Jerusalem of what it looked like in the lower left. But what's fascinating is they always land on Hebrew holidays. So we've had three since 1949, three successive. So a blood moon would be actually four blood moons over the course of two years. So I show you in 2014 and 2015 where it happened on Passover and Sukkot for both of those years. Again, the Jewish holidays. I point out here for uh, 1492 and 93. Coincidence, that's the year that uh, Jews are expelled from Spain and Columbus discovers America. 49 and 50 just happens to be the time that Israel's government is established. 67 and 68 happens to be when Jerusalem is recaptured by the Hebrews. 2014, 2015, the Jewish people gain access to the Temple Mount. So these are signs that I believe that, that are great things that have happened. And, and again, they're, they're, they're used for a purpose is, is what I want to get to. So I'm going to put on the, the NASA scientific cap for a sec. Well, actually, before that, let me do this. Let me read Psalm 19, because this would be a good foundation. Uh, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech, and night unto night it shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, S-U-N, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as, the, as a strong man to run the race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and a circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. So he, he's called the bridegroom, the sun, S-U-N, is called the bridegroom, which I personally believe the sun is a, is a symbol or a sign for us to the sun, uh, S-O-N, uh, um, to, the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Scripture kind of bears this out because who is the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. So to the left, I show you in these six verses, what happens here is you're seeing that it does four things. The heavens declare and show the glory of God. 
It prophesies. It shows speech. It says there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It gives knowledge. And also it shows his purposes. So what I'd like to point out here is uh, in 1979, I believe, the Voyager 1 and 2 was sent out by NASA, and or 77, and it went out to the edges of the universe, turned around, and took pictures. And it took them to 1990 or 91 to get there. But what happened was the, it, the, the data was received back in NASA, and the accounts by a lot of these scientists and engineers that were there said it just sent shivers up their spine. They looked and they saw <clears throat> that the sun was showing this beam of light over the Earth only. So out of all the planets in the solar system, and I'm giving you a graphical artist rendition of what the solar system would look like in terms of the circuit design of the sun, but it is only the sun, which happens to be the third planet or third star from the sun, which I think, again, is another sign of the Trinity. But it also shows that we need the, the light of the sun to give us our life, to enable us to breathe, to have carbon dioxide, to have plants and vegetation, to have food. So all of this is sustained because of the heat that is emanated not only from the sun, but the light that goes strategically upon the earth. Uh, so they, they had a, what I would say is a bit of a spiritual experience. And interestingly, the book of Daniel says, in the latter days, you will gain knowledge. And this knowledge could not have happened until the 1990s. We didn't have the technology to know or understand this. Now, the flip side is you had uh, Carl Sagan, who is a, uh, an atheist, very famous uh, um, astronomer. He wrote the book uh, Pale Blue Dot because he basically inferred that this was nothing but a mere speck. Uh, and, and actually, let me read what exactly what he wrote. wrote. He said, because of the reflection of sunlight... The earth seems to be sitting in a beam of light as if it was something special or significant to the small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. He went on to say that our planet is but a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. So I would say otherwise. I would say that this has been purposeful by design, that the Lord is doing this. And I say, looking at this, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. I see the glory of God in this. I see the majesty and the profoundness and the beauty and the wisdom. I, I, I can go on. It just I, I marvel at this. So this is, again, another example. And then I'll just close with uh, something that happened in 2017. And this is, again, I'm not going to do a big breakdown, but uh, let me let me just say uh, Revelation 12, 1 through 5. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So if you read 1 through 5, this actually appeared in the heavens on September 23rd in 2017, where the constellations lined up exactly uh, as what Revelation said. And, and again, you can look this up. I've, I've cited this, I believe, under a, a recent video that I did, tribulation, I'm sorry, uh, rapture signs in modern times, where I went into a little bit more detail and I show you all of this, how, uh, you know, and I'm using the, the Virgo and Leo because that's how we know and understand things. Uh, but this exact lined up and I believe they said it was almost 6,000 years since all of this lined up exactly. Some people dispute it. But my understanding and doing the research that I did that everything, uh, meaning the 12 stars above, the sun, the sun shining on her shoulder, 
and also the retrograding of Jupiter. Jupiter is considered to be uh, another term for the Messiah in the Maseroth, and it actually circled in the woman's womb for 41 weeks before coming out. And uh, last is that there's a uh, an image of a dragon that has been redacted by Google. If you go to Google SkyDrive, you can look up and plug in these constellations. And I don't know why, but somebody captured this beforehand, and a couple of different people did. And this is, I give you that little red image there. And it does, it looks a little bit like a dragon. So I'm not saying for sure, but I, I am highly suspicious of why Google would redact this image. But again, I personally believe this is another sign in the heavens of, of what the Lord has given us. So hopefully it gives you kind of a, a biblical foundation as to the importance of the sun, the moon, the stars in terms of communicating information, knowledge, prophesying that we can look upon this. Now, let me shift to uh, what, what exactly happened. Let me just say, because of time, I can't get into all of the biblical astronomy uh, for it, I would recommend a book by E.W. Bollinger called The Witness of the Stars. There are others. There's another one that came out a couple of years ago by Marilyn Hickey. I haven't had a chance to look at it. That may be another good reference. There's, there's quite a few, so if you look that up online. But I always find E.W. Bollinger's, his works has is, is, is been just tremendous. Um, I, I'm citing, if you jump down a couple of paragraphs here, he determines the numbers of the stars and calls them each by name. So the Lord knows these stars. He's named them. That's, that's, that's the number one thing. Um, the, uh, um, the, the other, I guess, the, the, the impetus or the, uh, the point that I want to drive home is, so not only does the Lord knows this and shows all this, but now let's flip the script a little bit. Satan knows all this. He was there from the very beginning. He was there when the earth was created. He was there with... Uh, his cohorts, as well as what I'll call the good angels, in the very beginning when the earth was created, when when the heavens were created, when the planets were put put together. And he saw the structure and the design, and it's quite possible that he may have even had an input into it. Because I would contend, based upon all the research and what Scripture says, that he obviously had an incredibly lofty position uh, within the realm of heaven and, and the realm of God, and, and could have been right behind Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I can't say that for sure, but he's, he's right up there if, if, if not. Um, so, you know, the point that I'm trying to get to is that they were very, very familiar with all of the cellular constellations. And I would kind of point to uh, the fact that Lucifer was named uh, the morning star. He was in Eden. He was in the garden of God. He was on the mountain of God. He walked up and down with the Lord. And and again, if you look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the Most High. So here you see that pride, but he's referencing the stars and he is called the morning star. So there, there's, a, there's a great degree of uh, relevance and of information here that the whole time from the very beginning of creation, Satan and, and the others that, that are now been sentenced with him were part of this and would be familiar with it. So going back to uh, the, these four specific constellations, I'm going to read a little bit here. Starting on the left uh, in, 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 the, in the blue here or the aqua color, it has also been established that the descending shafts in the Pyramid of Giza align with four distinct stars at a time. And we, and we broke all of that down. Uh, so 
let me jump over to the right because this is really so we know that they're going to these stars but I want to point to the star of Alpha Draconis uh, so if you follow me on video on the right hand side Dra Draco is the third constellation in the sign of Sagittarius it's in the northern sky remember the northern sky that's going to become very important particularly when we get to part three of this uh, the brightest star in this is called Thuban, which means the subtle. Draco means the dragon. You should know, or hopefully, anytime the dragon is referenced in the Bible, it points to Satan. It is depicted in the pictures of the planisphere of the heavens as a serpent. Draco was the pole star in 2170. In many places in both the Old Testament scriptures and in the Apocalypse, the dragon is directly associated with Satan. So here is this so-called star shaft of the king's chambers where it has a direct link with Draco. Who is the dragon? Who is the serpent? The devil. Who is more subtle than any beast of the field? It is of him that we read in the apocalypse, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels with him. The book of Revelation 12.9. This leaves us no doubt as to who the dragon is. Now we have a major clue in the connection between the Great Pyramid of Giza and the chief prince, the ruler of this rebel of this band of fallen angels and his two earthly subordinates, which would be Oresis and Isis. If we cast our minds back to the original fall of Lucifer as recounted by the prophet Isaiah, we will recall that prideful ambition led to his fall. This passage reveals another interesting vignette. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Yahweh. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Draco is the north in the northern sky, and it would appear from this verse that the habitation of Yahweh and his congregation is also in the north. And I will say that's the case. We will get into that in part three that the heaven and where the Lord sits is in the north. Um, the, the pyramid texts also find another celestial link between these primordial avatars, uh, I'm, I'm going to call them, that Isis and Oresis and their offspring, which is Horus, where it says, O morning star, Horus of the netherworld, divine falcon. Lucifer literally means morning star. Here used as an appendage to one of the principal heroes of the gallery of gods, stretching back to the first epoch of ancient Egypt. Horus plays a major role all throughout history of the pharaohs and beyond, and it is clearly identified in the engravings of many of the temples of Egypt and in some of the pyramids. He is oftentimes depicted as a very large man, over twice the size of his captives. He is often depicted holding a number of slaves or prisoners by the hair with one hand and his other arm raised with a weapon in readiness to slay his, his prey. I believe I have a picture of this later on. Can there be any doubt that the pyramids of Giza, known by the ancient Egyptians as the gateway to the other world, dating back to the time of the primeval, primeval age or the Zeptipi or first time of the gods of Horus, Isis, and Oresis? and that they were directly related to the activities of the Nephilim or the fallen ones and their offspring. Before I forget, and I just wanted to mention this, as I believe this is important, as I don't have this on, the, on any of the slides, um, but ancient, they, the, the, I'll call them the evolutionists, 
they they try to cite that the ancient Egyptians is is kind of where they want to begin from a time perspective, and they you know in order to make this work or their theories work, they have to go back many 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 thousands of years, and the furthest that even the encyclopedias or Wikipedia can go back with any of the ancient Egyptian tribes, pharaohs, their families, is roughly 3500 BC the most. Some people try to push it to 5000 BC, but even Wikipedia sites 3500 or right around that area. Why do I say that? Because if you look at the age of man from Adam on, it's 4000 years BC uh, or before the birth of Jesus. And interestingly, they cannot cite these Egyptians before 3500 BC. So this is right around the area, five, six, seven, eight hundred years after the birth of Adam. And of course, it cites to the validity uh, of, of the Bible. That was a side note. Another side note that I'd like to bring forth here is, is this Edfu text. And I just want to digress for a second because what it's showing here is another capture or a record of the flood. What do I mean by that? So uh, Graham Hancock wrote this book, Heaven's Mirror. And there's these uh, Edfu texts, which are basically a large, large series of hieroglyphics. I'm showing you an image of it on the bottom. So they were able to translate this and break it down. Uh, the Edfu text declares that the development of these sites, meaning this whole uh, pyramid of Giza area, should bring about the resurrection of the former world of the gods. So they're, they're citing that there will be a resurrection. There will be these gods coming back. And I will say that we have a hint of that, and we'll get to it in part three, uh, that we, we can find that in, in Scripture. Um, and not in the sense of resurrection, but for coming again to the earth. Uh, he also informs us of the time of the seven sages, which was an era when divine beings settled along the banks of the Nile, these divine beings known as the builder gods. So these would have been the Nephilim. But here's, here's the other interesting aspect. This, this land where the earliest mansions of the gods were founded, it also cites... But this ancient domain was destroyed by a huge deluge, and the majority of its divine inhabitants were drowned, and their mansions were inundated. So again, now this is pointing to the global flood, the world, or if you don't want to agree with me on a global flood, that this is what this is saying. It's at least saying that this area was flooded and destroyed and everything with it. So I would say that this is the flood that we know in Genesis with Noah, which is the reason that the Lord destroyed everything and everyone in it outside of Noah and his family. So I just wanted to kind of uh, highlight that. And then you see some other things, again, going back to astronomy and the signs, and you see the bull here and the fish and Pisces and Taurus and, you know, those the, those uh, 12 signs again. So they were very much into the occult. They were very much into the black arts, uh, you know, into the zodiacs and to, you know, getting this information out there. And look at the incredible amount of detail. I'm going to show you another image or two very shortly, but notice the incredible amount of detail that is found. This is found in ceilings and in walls and in columns and in 
uh, other um, uh, sculptures outside of the area. The, the, the attention to detail is just tremendous. So let me shift to the strength of the Nephilim. Now, we know that they're giants. We know from Scripture that they could be anywhere from, let's say, safely 10 feet to possibly as high as 30 feet. Um, and, and we know, for, at least in terms of uh, um, David, in, in his encounter with Goliath, Goliath would, by those measurements, be about 13 feet. Um, King Og, which I believe is Deuteronomy, that would put his bed at around 18 feet high, so or, or in length, I should say. So you have this natural strength from these giant creatures. But then you put in the supernatural, and I wanted to cite a couple of different scriptures to bring this about. Uh, I'm citing Mark 5, 1 through 5. Again, many people could be familiar with this. This is where uh, Jesus travels, and this man is on uh, the, the, this part of land where he's known to break chains. He's crazy. They can't heal him. They can't do anything for it. It's unclean spirits in him. But what I'm getting at is the supernatural strength, even though they try to restrain him with chains, he's able to break them. And I would say that is because of the supernatural ability. Uh, Acts 19, 13 through 16. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon all of them to call over them which had evil spirits, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one, Sceva, a Jew, and chief of, of the priests, which did so. So here you have seven people who you can see is really not exercising with faith. They're trying to mimic what they saw Paul do. And they're saying, well, be gone in Jesus' name, just as Paul did it. So the response from the Spirit is, uh, uh, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the man whom, whom this evil spirit was leaped upon overcame them, and he prevailed against them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. My point is, here you have this supernatural strength empowering this one man to overtake seven men, and by all accounts, uh, fairly reasonably. The other, so what I'm, you know, I hope what I'm getting at is you've got this supernatural strength. Then you have these capabilities that I readily concede I don't necessarily understand, but Scripture is Scripture. So when Satan tempts Jesus in the desert in Luke 4, 6-7, through 7, it says this, And the devil said to him, All this power will I give you, and the glory of them, for that is delivered to me and to whomsoever I give it, if thou wilt worship me and shall be so. So somehow or another, Satan is able to manifest this imagery and, and of the kingdoms of this world and offering to give this to Jesus if he will bow down and worship him. So that is the power and the magnitude that I'm trying to get at that happens in the spiritual realm, that here you have the Son of God, but Satan is allowed to tempt him and to show him some things. I don't, again, I don't necessarily know or understand, but there's there's these areas that the Nephilim are operating in, the fallen angels are operating in, that has great, tremendous power, which is how I would say are capable of building these different structures and constellations and, and whatnot. And then last, I, I point here in Exodus 7, 10 through 4, most, 14, most people familiar with this, this is part of the plagues that comes upon the Lord and you know, Moses is, is, is chastising and, and going at it with, with Pharaoh. 
And it says, and, and, uh, and Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt, and they did so in like manner. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. But my point is that there's this supernatural manifestation that happened for good and for evil. And there's many cases in the Bible that you can cite this. So, I, you know, I kind of wanted to bring this out and, and bring this to the forefront that not only are we dealing with these large, giant Nephilim beings, but you're also do not, and I should say maybe even emphasize more so, the spiritual component in terms of capabilities, supernatural strength, uh, uh, information that's passed down that defies anything man can think of because these fallen angels would have had information from the very creation of the heavens. So as I said, I wanted to show you some of the uh, detail. Now what you're seeing on the right is, is the ceiling of one of these uh, um, uh, uh, pyramids and look at the attention to detail. Look at also it points to astrology, to the stars, uh, but the columns, it's, it's just incredible. This was not done by man. And again, pointing to the astrology on the left-hand side. And then interestingly, perhaps this is depicted uh, something taken from Scripture, where the lion, you could say that the lion from the tribe of Judah, the, you know, uh, tramples the serpent. Uh, but So this is also found in one of the images. And then I'm just closing, you know, this piece with all of the different giants that, that you see. You know, I noticed, I, I pointed out the false god before taking his prisoners. But look at the difference in height of what we're seeing. And what I would say is if they're sculpting these, if they're painting these, if they're drawing these things, they're doing it from something that they've seen. They're, they're, this, is, this is not anything that they've got, you know, uh, an iPhone or, or Photoshop or whatnot. This is what they've drawn. So look at the difference in height between all of these. It's pretty magnificent. Then on the right-hand side, I'm showing you these elongated skulls that have been captured by, uh, or not captured, I'm sorry, but have been dug up through archaeological digs of women. But notice the, 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 uh, the size and the, and the shape of the skulls. It's just kind of very freaky, and I believe this was what potentially Queen Neferidi could have looked like. Uh, you know, and you've got the snakes on on their tops of their of their caps, and uh, you know, then you see you know, what I would contend are uh, you know that you are looking at male and female Nephilim, and you know these are some of these quote unquote gods that were very active and alive, and remember that th this could have this would have been right in the face of the Hebrews who were enslaved for four hundred years in and around, well, after the flood, after the flood, this would have been uh, about 800 years after the flood that, you know, you're talking roughly in the time of around uh, 1500 to 1450 BC. So I wanted to point that out. And let me close with this. Consider the black and the secret arts of the sorcerers and the pharaohs. Only those that were selected were allowed access to this deep clandestine rites of the inner cabal. So when we ponder how these gods of old fashioned and assemble of old fashioned and they assemble these gigantic stones and again some weighing you know several tons and the monuments that they built, we must remember that we're dealing with beings with great supernatural power at their disposal, 
Not only were these titans and other Nephilim great in physical stature and strength, but the infusion of the spiritual power, it enables them or empowers them to be able to do even mightier feats. And their leader was the most exalted spirit being of all when he was created. Ezekiel, just a reminder, it describes him as you were the model of perfection. You were full of wisdom and you were perfect in beauty. The Gospels are littered with examples of spirit power as exemplified by the, by the Messiah and then later on in Acts by uh, the apostles on behalf of uh, the name of Jesus. So is it really any wonder that the precursor to the Messiah, who was around from the foundation of the world, maybe even played a part in it, is able to engineer and construct these pyramids and these temples and these you know, great uh, uh, the, the, these, these puzzling lines all over Nazca, what I would say is even more amazing is how he's pulled the wool over our eyes. How we just look at this as going, oh yeah, that was an ancient group of people that, that built that. And we have this tendency, at least I do, that you know, you look at these images from afar and you maybe see them on the internet, and I'm sure they're much more impactful if you're there. But you kind of look at this as this big pile of rocks. But the amount of intricacy that's involved in this and the, and the detail that goes into it just defies anything that, that you could possibly imagine. And I would encourage you to go online and look on the inside of some of these pyramids if you don't have the chance to, to go there. So when considering the mathematical and the astronomical alignments of the pyramids, and remember, we can also look at the temples of Mexico, Guatemala, Cambodia, Egypt, and many other places, let us remember that these spirit men are intimately familiar with the stars and their courses. They are keenly aware of the signs and the seasons which mark the precision of the equinoxes. I am sure that they are carefully watching for any of the conjunctions or the other signs in the stars which may announce the next major happening or prophetic calendar. Remember what we said when we cited in Psalms earlier, that it prophesies, the stars prophesy. Things happen in the heavens and they foretell of a coming event. We remember Troth in his description of being the master of mathematics and astronomy, that he was a recording angel. So on that note, if you're following me on video, just look into the middle. You see this god Thoth. Uh, I said Troth, I'm sorry. He is the Egyptian god of writing, magic, wisdom, and the moon. He is one of the most important gods of ancient Egypt, alternately said to be self-created or born of the scene of Horus. So what does his book say? Well, his book is said to contain two spells, one which allows the reader to understand the speech of animals, and this is going to become important in part three, and one of which allows the reader perceive the gods themselves. The story also reflects that the Egyptian belief is that the gods' knowledge is not meant for humans to possess. So notice he has the head of a falcon. You see a lot of that in these ancient Egyptian um, uh, carvings and, and, and whatnot. I'm going to get into a lot more or not a, a fair amount in the next section because there's relevance to the animals. And I'm going to show you that in scripture as well as how Satan has defiled the earth with this. So in closing, let me just say this. We remember that the devil was able to show the Messiah all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. I still don't understand that, but we are aware that by his schemes and deceits, the whole world is ensnared or in this delusion of despair. It is abundantly clear that the architect and sponsor behind all of the massive pyramids and temples around this world and the dark deeds which distinguish these ancient times is none other than Satan himself. 
which is the devil, that ancient serpent who deceives the whole world. He is the great master deceiver. But why choose the pyramid shape? Why is it more practical? Wouldn't it be more practical to build a temple or a tower or a statue or some other icon? Why a pyramid? The shape is so unusual and incongruous that it can be for no other reason why the gods chose the pyramids. I personally believe, and I'm going to hopefully bear this out with you in the closing section, that there is a great significance to this, that the shape and the reason for these pyramids will be a little bit of an eye-opener, that we will see this in the end and in the beginning. Uh, So that's really what what we're going to be doing in part three. We're going to go into the origins of the the pyramid shape. I'm going to show you scriptural examples, the relation to animals, as as I said also, and, and kind of citing why we will potentially see some of the relevance here come up in the book of Revelation as well. So hopefully you can uh, join us for that. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Um, I I certainly have. I I appreciate your time. Again, uh, if you have any questions or comments, shoot me an email, russickoutlook at gmail.com. Prayer requests, happy to help, uh, you know, and happy to pray. Uh, I I really, again, thank you. And um, if you have any questions, more importantly, the most important thing is that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, if you have questions, if you have doubts, part of this hopefully shows you that this was these, these pyramids and temples and these designs around the world were not created by human beings, were not created by man, that there is a supernatural evil force at work in this world. But thank you, thank God that there is Jesus in the cross So I I would strongly encourage you, if you do not know the Lord, ask him into your heart. And and if you have questions, ask him. He'll find a way to answer you. I promise you, he always does. He says, I knock at the door of your heart. So on that, thank you again. Uh, You've been listening to Mark Russick. This is the Russick Outlook. And remember, as always, just my opinion.